corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from Sydney, welcome to Corrupted Nerds, episode 16. Hi, I'm Stilgerian. Well, it's been a while, but today we look back at RuxCon 2016, the hacker conference that was held in Melbourne in October. And that's an appropriate topic, really, given that Corrupted Nerds is a podcast about information, power, security, and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. First, here's a word from one of our sponsors. Pivot9 are proud to sponsor this RuxCon wrap, brought to you by Stilgarian. Are you a customer confounded and confused by enterprise IT? Are you a vendor trying to convince customers that your shiny new tool is exactly what they need? Whether it's specific advice about a single purchase or ongoing advice about what you should be doing with your IT life, Pivot9 is here to help. Find us online at pivot9.com. Cybersecurity is all about managing risk. We hear a lot about taking a risk based approach to security decisions. But how do you measure that risk? It's going to be different for every kind of organisation, surely. Well, later up in this podcast, we'll hear from Ron Gula, who's the founder of Tenable Network Security. But for the main part of today's episode, you'll hear from the same two people who joined me a year ago to discuss RuxCon 2015. Michael McKinnon, who's now Director of Commercial Services at Sense of Security, and Darren Pauli, who's Security Reporter for The Register. When we got together a few days after RuxCon, well, the Melbourne weather was lovely, so we decided to record this podcast out in a park. Well, here we are in Melbourne with Darren Pauly and Michael McKinnon, and specifically we are at the side of what, Darren? It's the Coburg, Coburg Lake Reservoir. Which sounds much bigger than it actually is. I'm, I'm seeing something that looks like a creek that's had a weir stuck in it, and it's full of muddy water and ducks. That's about right, with a bit of um, prison bluestone around the edges. Yes, what is that? It's, it's a Victorian-era building. Yeah, so across the road is Pentridge Prison, which is about 150 years old, decommissioned about 20 years ago, and it was home to a bunch of Australian, famous Australian prisoners, all the way back to Ned Kelly, and Chopper Reed had a bit of time there, um, Mr Renticill, who was getting around in uh, Melbourne, was it? Was, mm. was there, and a bunch of others, and now uh, it's home to apartment blocks um, and craft breweries. Excellent. Well, it's good to see the middle class in jail, I think uh, you'll all agree. (laughs) But moving on to RuxCon, overall impressions, because the three of us did talk about this last year. I'll start with you, Michael. Yeah, so RuxCon, look, it's the if if you're in Melbourne, it's the HackerCon you really can't miss. It's uh, been going for a very long time now, many, many years. And, uh, yeah, it seems to be, you know, plodding along just nicely. Um, You know, some of the activities that they've got are always interesting to see how they've changed over the years. And I note that the hardware hacking... Village in particular has kind of grown over time, which I, which I wonder if is kind of connected to the whole IoT kind of you know phenomena as well, where people are sort of more oh, interested in the, the hardware level of things. It would have to be. Mm. Mm. Uh, and well, Darren, you were playing around with that. What did you actually do in the hardware hacking village? Um, to be honest, I basically soldered my headphones. <laughs> 
So it wasn't so much hardware hacking as hardware fixing. Yeah, pretty much. You no, know, I, I had a crack at. Um, uh, geez, I'm. I, it's it's not my area at all. But they were there were there was uh, were soldering things onto boards that were sort of fiddly and complex, and it really just showed me how much I have to go. Really. Uh, the same for me. I have not touched hardware for years. Mm. Uh, and I think I'd have such a steep learning curve, or not? Mm, absolutely. It's it, but, well, the interesting things too is it's become very commoditized, you know. So I think there's so many tools available now, and you've got guys who are pulling apart like old routers and you know gateways mm-hmm. and access points, and actually reprogramming them, and re, you know reflashing the firmware and coming up with all sorts of interesting mods and stuff like this. So it's really fascinating stuff. Well, they are just little computers in a box, they right? Are, they I mean, are. that's all the Internet of Things is that suddenly raises the thought in my mind that you could open up your router box obviously reflash it give it to that relative that you never did like uh, and, and it's a suddenly an extremely different kind of device absolutely i'm sure there are plenty of examples where people yeah. may or may not choose to do that to their relatives or other people. Now, we'll give a, a quick preview now of the things we are going to talk about. Darren, the highlights for you. Um, well, what you wrote about, which may not be the same thing. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, the LTE hacking by uh, Quinhu360, um, that was a, a lady from the Chinese vulnerability discovery firm over there, and she worked out through a bunch of um, perversions to protocols how to... Uh, men in the middle LTE phone calls and text and also send them into a denial of service sort of condition. And I can build on to that uh, with an Australian researcher who spent quite a bit of time in the Netherlands working with a telco showing us how the global network that routes all of our international data traffic is very vulnerable. So Mm. we'll we'll come back to that. Some good uh, cheery mobile stories. Uh, We've also got some hardware things to talk about. And I know, Michael, you want to talk about the Black Bag Challenge. The Black Bag Challenge, absolutely. But first, uh, I want to get you to talk about... Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services. Yeah, so there was a really great talk from Dan Gzilak, I've probably just butchered his surname, from Atlassian, and um, and he also had a, a colleague with him as well. And they well, they go through this story of, I think the, well, the talk was called uh, AWS Regrets, Gremlins in Your Cloud Success. And he talks about sort of a... Uh, loosely talks about a situation that may or may not not happen to Atlassian with a third party and it was in relation to the credentials that are used with Amazon Web Services and what he showed was that there are so many gotchas in the way their policy uh, permissions work uh, such that this particular third party could essentially assign almost any role they wanted within Atlassian's Amazon environment but it went further than that it was even third parties to that third party you know, fourth or fifth parties could do the same thing all the way back through the chain. Hang on, we're talking therefore about, okay, Amazon Web Services, AWS is the platform. Mm -hmm. We've got Atlassian providing all their services on that. Correct. Atlassian has customers which will include development companies. Well, they're not customers. So Atlassian have suppliers who are providing extra value to the Amazon environment. It might be monitoring of their Amazon, you know, instances and, and and there are lots of different security providers and performance providers that will plug into your Amazon environment and give you all of this extra service. And it was the keys of that provider that, that, that have got so much access into their environment. But that means the vulnerability then goes through to Atlassian's customers, and those customers can include development firms who develop stuff for... 
I don't think what, the risk. No? no, I don't think the risk was the risk wasn't didn't extend to Atlassian's customers in that in a way. It was a risk that was more around. Uh, well, yeah, all of the data. You're right. It's all the data of their customers could potentially have been exposed to these these third party providers. We do need a diagram for that. But he had a way, great, It's terrible. I mean, absolutely. Let's not go into he, the details. That had, is shocking. He had mm. some great examples of things that um, are, are not common. Well, I, I got the impression they're not commonly used in Amazon, such as this thing called Lambda objects. And what they are is like little snippets of code that can be uploaded into your Amazon environment, and it can can be triggered on all sorts of different events. So he had this live demo, and it was was called something username rabbit or something like this and what it was was it was this lambda object that executed in their amazon environment or in in the demo environment and what it would do is it would look for a delete user event so if someone tried to so let's say there's a malicious user account in the system that someone has implanted Mm -hmm. they 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 set that up they've got access and they also put in one of these lambda objects and the, the idea is if that user is then deleted this little bit of snippet of code which the attacker has put into your Amazon environment can actually trigger on the user delete action and then create another user. Oh, wow. And, and in his demo, he actually, for every user that got deleted, it created two new users. Hydra, so it was kind right. of, you know, this exponential growth scenario. Oh. Uh, and he had some other great examples of where um, one of the, the concerns for a lot of companies with uh, running an Amazon environment is the billing consequences of what happens as, you, as you're using these services. And he showed an example where you could, if you had access to someone's S3 bucket, which is the storage uh, service that Amazon Web Services have, you could actually copy files from, the, the, from an S3 bucket into the same S3 bucket. And this causes Amazon's billing uh, cycle to clock up the gigabytes of data that you're transferring essentially nowhere. And and you could rack up a really huge bill for your uh, for your victim. I just suddenly realised I saw the tail end of that presentation, and I hadn't realised that the name of an Amazon bucket is tied to the domain name of the customer. Yes, there's so, a customer name. So there's a region name, and then there's an account name or ID, and often it's the domain name. Often it's you know, if your company is called Google, well, your S3 bucket's going to be called Google. Your account's going to be called Google. So it's very easy to to guess what a company's Amazon ID is likely to be. But it also meant, according to what I think I heard, that if you knew a certain company did not have an AWS account but might in the future... You yes. could prename a bucket to Correct. something they would use. So when then the, when they logged in and created their bucket, that would be it. Correct. So so th- thus we have the denial of bucket attack. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, that's a perfect way to take a break. The Internet of Denied Buckets. You're listening to Corrupted Nerds. We'll be back in a little moment. Well, I'll be back uh, in a very little moment because I want to tell you about. All the supporters who made uh, this episode of Corrupted Nerds possible. I ran a possible crowdfunding campaign to get me down to Melbourne and uh, provide some accommodation and so on. So it's a special big shout out to the splendid supporters, uh, Adam Baxter, Rowan Pierce, David Heath, Rosemary White, Trent Yarwood, Stuart Young, Martin Orngle, Bruce Hoare, and two people who remained anonymous. There's also uh, some fine supporters, Jody Miners, Ginevra Makes, Errol Cavett, Adam Fitzpatrick, Tim Bell, Oberon's Ghost, Nick Andrew, Rick Heyman, Sil Mobile, Deej Bar, Lucas James, Gavin Costello, Matthew McBride, uh, Katrina Zetsi, Paul Kidd, and three anonymous folk. 
Uh, also, thanks to the generosity of Peter Leverdink, Ian Chalmers, David Pope, David J. Bruce, and a couple of more anonymous people. And thanks also to all of the people who tipped uh, some smaller amounts, a few dollars here and there, along the way. Also, a big thank you for the support from Hackers Helping Hackers. Uh, they're a, an interesting little organisation uh, founded in Melbourne. Basically, the aim is to... Uh, to provide funds to help uh, hackers get to conferences and other events that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to get to, uh, go to hackershelpinghackers.com, hackers uh, I think it is, and uh, you can find out about how to support that or how to uh, convince them to give you some money. This is the live recorded in a park in Melbourne episode of Corrupted Nerds. I'm with Darren Pauly and Michael McKinnon. Darren, didn't we see some great stuff happening with mobile phones at RuxCon? We did. We saw some pretty complex uh, research. So the 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 one that really uh, took my interest was the targeted LTE cell phone interception work. LTE is just 4G and up, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... Uh, the researcher was from um, a Chinese hacking house called Quihu uh, Quihu 360, who do a um, they have a lot of dedicated units I think that, that work in various um, various different areas of security research and, and she was in the sort of communications area um, and she'd built on a lot of um, pre-existing uh, research into LTE so tooling that people had developed protocol analysis things like that. And she patched it all together to develop two attacks where you could target someone uh, and force their LTE phones into a denial of service condition so they can't make... You'd actually push them down to 2G um, so they can't make any any um, phone calls at all. And she did this essentially just by sending, just hammering the phone with a now-you-have-to-disconnect signal. I- exactly right. So there's, the, so there's an emergency... Uh, fallback system in the event of earthquakes, volcanoes, or whatever you, you like. Alien invasion. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it forced, and that will allow a, um, a broadcast tower to say, hey, come to me, you know, I don't have a lot of load, and the phones will uh, then connect to that tower. So What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> exactly, right? So pretend that you are, spin up one of those kind of, an emulated version of one of those towers, broadcast out, hey, hey, connect to me. And the phones do, and then from there on, you know, you Bob's can, your uncle. Bob's your uncle. That's right. So, so she did. Uh, she did hammer these phones. She she managed to intercept um, and demonstrated in a couple of little pre-recorded demos, not to anger the demo gods. And then she, so she she intercepted phone calls. She intercepted text messages, and then uh, yeah, the other one was a denial of service. So she did this research a little while back. Is this still a thing? It is, it is. So, oh, good. So, yeah, it, it exists now. She went to the 3GPP. I'm not going to try to attempt to remember what that acronym <laughs> stands for, but it's basically all the telco executives that sit together and grumble. And that was acknowledged in, like, 2007. So before she started, it was they, they acknowledged that exposure and decided, well, no, it's actually it's a feature, not a bug. Mm. Or maybe it's both but we can't get rid of it. So. Well, yeah, I mean, you do have to have some way of telling a, a phone, no, get off this tower, there's it's, a problem. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and it's that, that, that kind of evil AP access point sort of thing that just enables these attacks to work so effectively. And, 
Uh, there was a study when I was re- researching this to write it up. Um, I found a guy who just had just posted something to GitHub, and when he was at DefCon, he used a an, a uh, it was a it was a an evil access point like detection thing um, where you can detect if people are trying to set spin up little femto cells or whatever it mm-hmm. is, and he detected dozens of them all through DefCon. So it really is the advice <laughs> that don't really turn your thing. phone yeah, on yeah. is, is it's no like blow up. Stingrays, is that what they're called as yeah, well? I think. Like yeah, that, the, yeah. Uh, Which yeah. is what uh, law enforcement mm. use, although I'm starting to get the impression that's a generic term and there's quite a few brands now. Like yes. Stingray is a brand of them mm. or a model of them or whatever. Mm. So you use a Stingray for hoovering up. So if we put the tinfoil hat on, would we suggest that this bug in uh, in this LTE is uh, you know is is helpful to the Stingray uh, manufacturers? Oh, I mean, I mean, if you picture if your business model mm. or your job is to intercept telecommunications from either either tar- either specific targets or in crowded situations. Mm. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would you would look at this. You'd look probably not so much the denial of service stuff, unless you wanted to, you know, put down a protest or something like that. But um, who would want to do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to no one that I can think of. No. <laughs> well, while we're on the topic of uh, the mobile phone networks, there was another excellent presentation by uh, Stephen Coe, who's now with HP Enterprise in Australia. He's an Australian. Uh, but he was working for a Dutch telco for a while. He gave us a crash course in a thing called GRX, the GPRS Roaming Exchange, basically the mechanism that allows you to use mobile data roaming in another country, route it back to your home provider and make sure everyone is billed correctly Mm. for it. Or billed exorbitantly, as the case may be. (laughs) That is correctly. As far as the telcos are concerned, (laughs) that is the correct way to do it, is exorbitantly. Now... The GRX network has 25 providers. In Australia, Telstra is one of them. The others are scattered around the planet. And the telcos connect to those providers, and those providers have the network connecting them. That's the GRX network. And it's uh, a separate IP network from the internet. And when you route a mobile data connection, it tunnels over the GRX network in a thing called the GTP, the GRX Tunneling Protocol. All, uh, all very sensible so far. So, when I say that this network is separate from the internet, what do you think the real answer is? Not <laughs> at Probably all. Probably not. <laughs> not at all. Spewing over the public web. One of the things Mr. Co did was scan the internet looking for hosts that responded on uh, UDP ports 2123 and 2152, which right. are the Protocols and so he's used, looking for these 25. He's looking for these uh, GRX. Oh, there's another thing called the... Uh, what is it? The GPR, no, GPRS Tunneling Protocol, GTP. But before that, you have Stream Control Transmission Protocol, SCTP, which is all these UDP packets setting up the routing information. Mm. Before you even get, get to that, there's a thing called the SS7 Protocol for... But, like, let's not even go there. This is just mm. ridiculous. He said something about the amount of acronyms that the he did, telco He did just, warn yeah. us that <laughs> yeah, that's the problem doing anything with telcos. The, the networks are just so complicated under the hood. Mm. Uh, look, I just wonder how international phone calls work at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this little device in my hand and I can connect within moments to anyone else on the entire planet mm. with a similar device. Mm. Uh, it's just incredible. 
Anyway, back to Mr. Coe. He scanned the internet looking for hosts which responded on these two ports. These are ports which should only exist on GRX. Well, he found 413 DNS servers which are doing all of the name resolution on GRX. So then he kept digging and found that of these machines, wait for it, 413 of them were running mail servers, 401 were running web servers on HTTP, 1425 were running FTP servers, mm. and do you remember Telnet? Mm. 810 of them had open Telnet ports. Excellent. Perfect. And without going into the details, I wrote about this for, for ZDNet, and there'll be a link on the podcast uh, webpage, as, as also will be a link to the slides from this presentation. Um, there were versions of this software dating back to 2001. Unpatched mm. versions of software, 14 years old, 15 years old, on the machines which route mobile data calls. So they're easy to hack. And here's the best bit. All of that routing information travels over GRX unencrypted. Even better. Unencrypted. Lovely. So that Lovely. includes your phone ID, the IMEI, uh, your something that can be traced back to your Did account number. Did he talk number. about whether it's possible to oh, and inject... Oh, your location. Did he tell whether it was possible to inject sort of information into that system or...? Look, uh, I don't... Look, let's just... It's UDP, remember. What yeah. more do oh, I need? Oh, well, if it's UDP, then bingo. Bingo, bingo. He's, you're there. Yeah. You're just, yeah. like, straight in. So I wonder... When I... Uh, I was at uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona earlier this year, and I've, I've gone for the last sort of four years or so, and... Uh, theft of mobile devices in uh, in Barcelona is rife, and um, it's often the interesting story here is that they they're waiting for big trade shows like Mobile World Congress because everyone's going to have a mobile phone because that's what the Congress is about, and your phone gets uh, stolen, but they literally throw the phone in the bin. They don't care about the phone. What they care about is the SIM card, because the SIM card is the gateway to racking up these uh, these charges, these data charges. And uh, in some cases, people have been returning back to their home countries and finding, you know, these incredibly large bills, as we know how much the roaming charges are ordinarily. But when they drilled down into the data properly, they discovered that it was there were multiple concurrent data connections happening. So it's like not like one connection, but multiple. It's like making, and in some cases, they're making like 30 phone calls at the same time from one SIM card. So they're clearly not putting about... these SIM cards in, in an ordinary phone. Yeah, there's, there's something a bit cleverer going the, on. These are two premium services and stuff, is it? Yes, exactly. Oh, OK. Exactly. OK. Just going to say that. So ah. I wonder, this could, be, this could be the virtual way of doing it, where they're well, even stealing the phone. Well, the reason you do that is not so much to get the use of the... The reason you do that isn't so much for you to get use of those premium services. It's that the service itself gets it, its cut of the call so the mobile operator gets its mm -hmm. you know fee for the 1900 number but the end user is getting all of this revenue which they're just milking out of the the originating uh, telco uh, which is then billed out back to the the end customer mm. or not so mm. even if that telco gives that customer back their money uh, the telco at the billing end well, they've got the call, and if they're in a country that's disinclined to refund the money, mm -hmm. it's all very clever. Um, but we're still using these phones, aren't we? Yeah. I, I mean, that, that stuff, right, that, that talk, the GRX talk, I mean, some of those exposed vulnerabilities, as you said, 15 years old, right? They're insane. Remote code execution, 
Like yeah, tons it, of- it trivial to take over, and of the 25 GRX providers globally, 15 of them had hosts exposed. So we can, in Australia, Telstra was not one of these, uh, as I think we'd expect. <laughs> but <laughs> does that really matter when you can come in via Nigeria or, or Uzbekistan? Or I, I shouldn't name those because I don't know that they mm. were in the 15. But uh, certainly Stephen Coe suggested that part of the problem is is in countries where there's a rapidly expanding mobile network where there's not so much money about and people are keen to get these these cell towers online yeah, so I think he did, he did mention Africa throwing. didn't he I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yes and, that, and that's a rapidly growing uh, area indeed yeah. so um, we're just going to pop away for a while and contemplate the use of our mobile phones uh, in the meantime we have an interview coming up stay listening Well, as I mentioned uh, at the start of this podcast, uh, security, cybersecurity is is really a, a risk management job. You don't want to spend more on protecting certain kinds of data than it would actually damage you if it uh, went missing. But how do you measure that risk? It's different, you see, for each kind of organisation. Well, one of the presenters at RuxCon 2016 was Ron Gula. Uh, he's the founder of Tenable Network Security. He created the Dragon IDS, uh, Intrusion Detection System. Uh, before that, in a previous life, he was a penetration tester with America's NSA. Uh, so he presented this thing on uh, risk at RuxCon, uh, but uh, Tenable was also a key sponsor I gave him a phone call, um, oh, it's again a few days after the conference itself. Ron Gawler, this was your first time at uh, RuxCon in Australia. What were your uh, initial impressions? Well, I was really happy to come and see uh, see RuxCon and participate. Of course, Tenable sponsored it. Uh, I see a lot of differences between, uh, you know, maybe the, 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 the news stories that are in the regions but almost, I see the same people kind of everywhere I go. There's a lot of penetration testers in the audience. There was a lot of incident response people in the audience. And there was a lot of, you know, cyber executives in the audience, you know, dressed in T-shirts and, you know, not shaving and stuff like that, trying to fit in. It's that kind of culture in cyber that I really like. And I do see the same kind of culture and, and interest all over the world. I'm going to follow up on that because uh, it is a very male culture. It is uh, a very young male culture, lots of black hoodies, uh, which I know that that's a cliche, but it's it's true, isn't it? Uh, how much has that changed over the years? My suspicion is not a whole lot. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, right now it's uh, the culture of uh, there's a lot of white males in there. But if we went back 15 years ago, those, those were the geeks. You know, those are the kind of people that everybody picked on, right? So now it's got the reputation for being a, you know, white male-dominated thing. What I, what I do think is happening is that the right amounts of uh, trying to woo people into the industry, whether they're minority based on sex or religion or where they're from or, or, uh, or, or race, uh, there's a lot of efforts in that. Uh, when I went to, I also got to go to the uh, ASIC conference, and I actually got to sit next to some uh, uh, some people who were doing more outreach to uh, women trying to encourage them to go into into cybersecurity, into mathematics, into uh, cryptology, and things like that. We have similar programs here in the states, and you know, there's so many open uh, issues, open jobs, open uh, uh, opportunities for people. You know, the more we can train, no matter who they are. 
I think it's great to bring them into the uh, into the cyber arena. Well, before moving on to uh, to other matters, I will mention Australia is in the the quite remarkable position that the head of CERT Australia is a woman, the head of uh, cyber policy in the Prime Minister uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is a woman, and uh, I met yesterday the executive director of the defensive side of the Australian Signals Directorate is a woman as well. So there's, there's the, the good example, at least, of some uh, powerful women in powerful positions there. Uh, but, Ron, your, uh, uh, your presentation at, uh, at RuxCon was about risk, and this is something that's been coming up quite a bit, I think, in discussions of uh, cybersecurity uh, in recent years. What are we getting wrong in thinking about risk? So... You know, the audience at RuxCon is very much a penetration tester and incident responder, people who play with malware and write malware for both, you know, uh, keeping the good guys safe and breaking into the good guys to, to see who's, uh, uh, where they could be better. It's the where they could be better problem that the industry has not really addressed. Uh, my version of risk is different than yours. We might have different businesses. You might be in charge of the nuclear weapons for the United States. I might be a casino. I would like to be in charge of the nuclear weapons to the United States uh, because I think I could have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, there's only a few people that want to be in charge of the nuclear weapons. Um, but, but the risks in each of those cases and the amount of control is very, very different. And that's the problem. When you go from a bank to a school to an ISP to your home, to your car, to the manufacturers in charge of your cloud services, the risk model is so there. And what happens is that we get two sort of, of, uh, of aspects of this. Like when you break in, you have malware, you have broken in, and now you're going to give your recommendations. They're usually very tactical. Or you see these news stories about like the denial of service of the Australian census. Or <laughs> Yeah, perhaps we better not go into the details of the census debacle because uh, uh, the Senate committee is still uh, deciding who will blame at this stage. But yeah, DDoS uh, is one risk, uh, which obviously causes a, a lot of money to be lost every minute. But it's, it's very different from losing, I don't know, the crown jewels of your customer database or something like that. And that's what's having a hard time is the public sees all these dramatic things. We see the DDoS, we see large amounts of personal data stolen, and we have no context about how was that organization defending, how are they really, really doing. It's very difficult for the uh, consumers of media to kind of reach in and figure out what's going on. This is why I'm so adamant about talking about these risk frameworks. You've got great progress from the Australian signals director at the top four, top 35, in the U.S. And, and a lot of worldwide, you have a lot of NIST cybersecurity framework gaining popularity. You've had the entire e-commerce industry use frameworks such as PCI, where they're designed to keep your credit cards uh, safe from being stolen and whatnot. We tend to speak in cyber about obtuse vulnerabilities and not, you know, larger things. In other regions, in other businesses, like flight safety, like building safety, like healthcare, like financial, we've got hundreds of years of language about talking about risk and secure design practices and whatnot. In cyber, we're just really getting started, which is why really trying to get people to think about that. Don't we have a danger with checklists, though, is that you know, and frameworks is that it does become a, a check-the-box kind of approach. Uh, and you say, yeah, I've got a firewall, check the box, but the fact that there's a, a Cat5 cable going around the firewall gets ignored. Well, do you want your airplane pilot flying from Sydney to Melbourne to ignore the checklists that he's supposed to do? Do you want your lawyer to go around you know, legal discovery processes because it's a checklist? 
course not. And what we don't have in cyber are checklists that really, really count. What we have is partial lists and partial practices like, you know, the use of passwords. Oh, you got to change your password every 30 days or you've got to patch uh, your network every, every, every seven days. You got to add those patches, right? But we have no real empirical evidence that any of that stuff makes us 10 times more secure or, or twice as secure or saves us money. Whereas in other industries, the airline industry, insurance, there's tons and tons of data that can drive those checklists. So we need better checklists. Um, the frameworks that we have are the best thing we've got right now because they're written by people who've done incident response and breaking the networks for a living. During your presentation, you mentioned too that uh, cyber insurance vendors will probably start using these frameworks. How far along the line to that do you think we are? So we're not really that far along with true cyber insurance. And, and when I say true cyber insurance, my definition of that is if you actually could measure the real likelihood of a cyber incident happening, DDoS, data theft, you know, things like that, insider threat, what is the risk of your network based on a population of other similar people? That's what, that's what the insurance people do. It's a, they, they spread the risk around and they, they spread the ability for people to, uh, to have that kind of, of stuff. What we don't have right now is any of that data where people can make that kind of decision. Um, unlike, I keep going back to the healthcare and to flight safety, we've got lots and lots of data about, you know, crashes and, and, and safety procedures that can make insurance decisions a lot smarter. Right now, what we have today in cyber is basically the ability to buy uh, incident response, to buy, uh, you know, in some cases, ransom, pay, to pay the ransomware stuff. And those are not bad things, but, um, but the industry can go a much, much, much longer way. You've mentioned uh, the aviation industry there, Ron. One thing that massively improved airlines safely or aircraft safely generally was the no-blame investigation process that whenever there's an air crash, the investigators look at that and they're not trying to blame someone. They're just trying to find the root cause so that the, mis the, the problem doesn't happen again. We also mentioned the Australian census where the whole process seems absolutely designed to find someone to blame and put their head on a spike as a, a warning to others. That tells <laughs> me that uh, we've got a real long way to go before we get that kind of process in the cyber world. It, it, it does. It does. And, and the thing is, is even, even with flight insurance, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a crash, they always do say that the pilot's, you know, ultimately at fault because he or she inspected the airplane and made that decision to take off, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. H having said that, though, you know, analogies, you, we have to use analogies to, to talk to people who don't understand cyber. But, you know, the really, it's really also hard because we're taking these insanely complex, you know, issues with dependencies and perhaps, you know, legacy technology and trying to kind of tell people where, where these problems are. Some of them are policy-based, some of them are technology-based and, 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 and whatnot. But right now, when it comes to cyber insurance, if they were to, if you were going to walk in and say, I want to assess this, the risk of a bank to be compromised, that's really, really tough. Because we all know, given the enough uh, amount of time and effort, just about anybody can be, can be compromised. And that threat keeps changing. I mean, we had the NSA tools, the equation group had their tools leaked out. You know, so would a cyber insurance, you know, company all of a sudden refactor that and go, oh, wow, there's a much higher risk of somebody breaking into firewalls now. It's really, really too tough to call at this point. 
Now, a personal opinion from here, Ron, stepping right back, if we appointed you God Emperor of the Internet tomorrow, what would be the first thing you did? Oh, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Um, so the question is really, you know, what is the Internet and what do we want people to, you know, to, to use it for, you know? Um, is it this place where all information is free and anybody can get to, 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 to anything? Well, you know, the governments worldwide, not 100% of the governments, you know, really want that kind of stuff. Uh, even in the, the U.S. where I'm from, there's a lot of people talking about censoring different types of free speech, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, racial relation or political related and stuff like that. So I tend to believe in, you know, information should be free, it's, but it's, it's, uh, it's really tough to have good information and bad information. Uh, you know, there's no magic fix to, like, just make the Internet more secure, and I don't really believe in these things of starting over. I do think a practical thing, all joking aside, I do like the progression where more and more applications that we use are moving toward to well-balanced, well-curated, cloud-first, highly reliable, designed to be, you know, secure from the ground up. So when you use things like Gmail, when you use things, uh, you know, various commercial applications, you know, Office 365, they are designed to, you know, run and offer a much better experience than what you could do by yourself. And I do like that trend. It's not going to solve everything, but it's a good, it's a good trend. And finally, Ron, I think uh, one of the most controversial questions of all in this field, the word cyber, for or against? Oh, it's, it's not my decision. I use it. And I, uh, I, I begrudgingly sort of uh, started using it. I used to say I was an information security person. I was a penetration tester. I, I've used the words hacker. I've used the words, uh, you know, security expert. But, you know, I really don't know much about physical security. But, you know, in the right context, that works, it works really, really well. Mm. Uh, mm. I'm okay with cyber. I think it's fine. A lot of people understand what that is. And, um, but when you really get down to it, when people ask me, hey, do you want to get into cyber? I'm like, hey, I'm glad you asked that. You know, do you like building things? Do you like breaking things? Do you like uh, making people's lives easier? Do you like uh, pointing out where they could be hurt by hackers? You know, there's a lot of different things. And the best thing about this industry is five years from now, we'll be talking about different models and different type of, uh, you know, opportunities to fix things or break things. So it's a great, great, great field to be in. And I think calling it cyber is fine. <laughs> I think I'm with you there, Ron. It's the word people understand now, and I've, I've taken it upon myself to use it uh, in every single context uh, that I can. So, Ron Gula, thank you for this cyber conversation. Hey, I enjoyed it. Great speaking with you. Ron Gula is the founder of Tenable Network Security. And in that uh, interview, we mentioned the disaster of the Australian census. Well, since that was recorded, we now have the two official reports of the investigations into what went wrong and they're both excellent reading one was by uh, a senate inquiry and uh, the other was by the prime minister's special advisor on cyber security alastair mcgibbon uh, they are both linked to in a story i wrote about it for zdnet and the details of that are on the the uh, podcast website at corruptednerds.com <laughs> We're back at the banks of the wonderful Coburg Lake Reserve, which sounds enormous, but it isn't. It's getting a little windy, so I hope that's not going to affect what we do. Uh, but hardware, who wants to start first? You, Darren, or you, Michael? Oh, I'm going to point to Darren on this one. Okay. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the uh, interesting talks over in the hardware department at Ruxcon was uh, concerning wireless keyboards and mice or mouses. I don't know. In this I've always said mouses. Mouses. Because mouses. to differentiate it from talking about big, big, big yeah, animals. Mouses. Well, uh, yeah. So just, mice. Actually, I've called it mouse kits in the article I wrote oh, on this. So there we go. Side the whole problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these guys, and I think there has been work done recently this year mm. um, in this kind of area, but but it was it was limited, and of course, you know, building on the shoulders of giants, these guys uh, came out with some new stuff. So they managed to um, they analysed, I think it was five, six, seven, eight different vendors: Logitech, uh, Microsoft, and then a couple of like a vendor called Cherry. I don't know, and a they've couple been around of a while. Ones. Oh, mm. you know, that? okay, I didn't know them. Oh, they've been around. 30 years. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Gamer keyboards and, like, really nice clicky clicky keyboards. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So, anyway, they managed to um, basically mess with the the way that they operated to uh, use, to to replay um, data inputs and then uh, basically gain remote remote code execution on, uh, on any machine that used these devices and built a nice little box that does it, like a Raspberry Pi box. That's cute because many operating systems, I, I was about to say most, but I, I am happy to stand corrected, still treat keyboards and mouses and other input devices with a fairly high level of trust. Yes, they do. In this case, what's interesting is that, and, and we've seen it, some of this research, as, as Darren was saying, has come out over this year. Um, earlier this year, we saw research from Bayland Seba, uh, who was a previous Ruxcon speaker, now works for a company called Bastille Networks over in the US and they did uh, a thing called Keyjack and Mousejack and they kind of did this first sort of working proof of concept using a thing called a crazy radio which was originally designed for these crazy fly drones like these little mini drones and it's a little USB stick with an antenna on it plug it into the side of your computer and it's effectively a software defined radio kit but Mm -hmm. just in like a little miniaturised version and it just turns out that you can reflash the firmware which (laughs) these guys at Bastille have done and it can tap then straight into a lot of these wireless keyboards and and mouses and so the scenario here is so let's look at what's secure we know that what's secure is a wired keyboard and a wired mouse obviously Mm -hmm. but like who's using those anymore Um, maybe maybe the keyboard but not so much the mouse um, and Bluetooth is reasonably safe as far as all research currently indicates, so Bluetooth is fine. So what's at risk here are those, is the typical package. You go to Officeworks, you, you buy the keyboard and the mouse, and it comes with a little USB dongle, and there's, there's different types, right? There's some that claim to be secure, and so these guys that presented at Rux were really focusing on those ones that claimed to be secure. Yeah. And there were some hilarious lulls when it came to looking at the encryption that some of these were using. One particular model had this great packet it would send. Once you finished pressing keys on the keyboard, it would send a packet to say, hey, there's no keys being pressed. And the actual uh, plain text packet itself was like mostly null bytes and the way the encryption works is you XOR two values now if you XOR a plain text value which is null with some random data you get the random data back right so basically they're able to infer and break the A is supposedly AES128 encryption. The other thing it was doing was adding like a random nonce to each packet. And so what would normally happen is if you someone had, had intercepted the keyboard, you wouldn't be able to replicate, or there'd be a break in the number sequence, right? But the USB dongle and the, and the software doesn't even bother checking that, of course. So the great thing about this attack was you could you could literally just record the radio transmission 
without even having to crack the data at the time when someone logs into their computer and then stop the recording and then replay it to log into their computer because it's essentially just replaying all the keys on the keyboard. Hurrah for replay yeah. attacks. And what's yeah. better is if you want to get their plain text password, you just open up Notepad so you can steal their USB dongle out of the back of their machine because it's tied to the keyboard. You basically, if you can get access to that or you can get access to the machine, and you can because you can unlock it, you bring up Notepad, you replay the keystrokes again, and bingo, you've got the plain text keyboard, the password staring at you. Or you can replay stuff into, like, the, didn't they have uh, replaying some attack code into um, command prompt yeah, and owning the... the... They, had another, they had another one to do with the mouse. So what you could do with the mouse was you could hijack the mouse and get the mouse to basically click on the start button and then click on, like, uh, the accessibility tools in Windows to bring up the on-screen keyboard. And then you could basically... And they showed this attack, bringing up the on-screen keyboard and going click, 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 and clicking, like, typing all of the characters in. But the guy said, it, it, depending on what computer it is, it can take, like, two to five minutes yeah. to execute the attack. So it's not something you want you to do quickly. You can imagine, like, uh, coming back to your computer and there's something tapping away, you know, some... On, on the virtual, on-screen on keyboard. Screen, yeah. <laughs> keyboard. This requires you to have physical access to the machine, though. I mean, really, if you're there, you're rummaging through their desk drawers and stealing their wallet and all this anyway. This yeah, is true. yeah, absolutely. It is true. Um, in terms of the range, it was interesting. They, 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 they were they were German. I think they said in meters, but I think he yeah. said 200 meters at one point. And, oh, I, and I remember thinking that's an awfully long distance. Yeah, he was saying you could extend it through amplification. You know, to blah 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 blah, which is all these. You know, I think he I think he dropped yeah. kilometers in, at one point in there. You know, which I mean, it's a, you know, you start extending these attacks and. I'd love to know if you could do a denial of office attack and just have like, just like broadcast to every keyboard in the place and just have <laughs> oh. random letters being pressed. Oh, I thought you said den- when you said denial of office, <laughs> I th- sort of thought of a Molotov cocktail through oh, the window. Right. Or something. Yeah. The 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 best part I've got to say of this whole research, on the, well, maybe the whole presentation rather than the research itself, mm. was the reaction of the vendors. Yes. So, um, you know, they, they had uh, Microsoft come back and they said, yes, this is a bug, you know, we'll fix it in the next version. So no one could patch their stuff mm-hmm. if they wanted to. It all had to be new new kit. Um, uh, Logitech said much the same. But then one of the vendors, um, a Cherry, in yeah. fact, it was, they responded by saying, we'll remove the word secure <laughs> from our marketing materials. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. This keyboard is redacted. Yeah, yeah. You can picture someone with a black texture, right? Perfect. Apple did that on something, though. There was some... Oh, yes. Apple's hard disk drivers, if you did not have whole disk encryption, so you, you just had an unencrypted hard drive and you used the secure empty trash feature, mm-hmm. which is meant to empty the trash and then do you know your multiple random writes over the, the files you've just right. erased... That didn't work. They found a vuln in it, or someone found a vulnerability in it and reported to Apple. So Apple just removed secure empty trash from the menu. <laughs> Taken off the shelf. It's got to be a legitimate op- op- option, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess they are telling you that it isn't a secure thing anymore. They, that's it. they probably ran their analytics and discovered that, you know, three people used yeah. it. Yeah. I think if we're being honest, though, and removing secure from marketing and whenever there's a vulnerability, like there's probably very few things that should ever be badged as secure. Mm-hmm. Well, know? this comes back to that whole thing. Secure is not a binary thing, you know. And yeah. I'm t- I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you don't have things that are secure or not secure.
viewer. You, everything is this continual... It's kind of hardened, maybe, you know. Uh, yeah. I still think the, word, the term mouse jacking sounds wrong. Yes, it does. It sounds like a... Uh... No, 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 don't. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to say what it sounds like. Sounds like what it says. Very briefly, the Black Bag Challenge. Michael. Yes, the Black Bag Challenge. So, um, you know, I've been to RuxCon for a number of years now and I've always seen this Black Bag Challenge and I thought, this is pretty cool. And they, they in recent years, they were broadcasting this into the, the top bar area. So let me explain what it is, first of all. That would be a good um, idea. The, the challenge, so you basically have teams that compete. Uh, each team consists of no more than two people. Uh, I think you can do it solo if you want, but it's kind of a stupid thing to do on your own, I think. Um, essentially, the challenge is you're given a mission and you have to, you have to execute the, the, the mission. And essentially, the mission, uh, the first part of the mission is to essentially... Sorry, that pause is because Darren, who doesn't have anything to say in this bit because he didn't do the black bag challenge, is throwing bread to the ducks. That was my phone. Oh no, alarm he's throwing... was going off. Oh, the... oh and right. I couldn't. I worked out I couldn't switch it off in time. So. We didn't hear it. Oh, good. So you've just thrown your phone away. That's good. That's good. Excellent work. Continue, Michael. Thank you. So the the teams compete to essentially break into a hotel room, which is part of the venue, and it's uh, you're given 15 minutes to carry out you know a number of tasks. And you're not really sure what those tasks are supposed to be, and as it turns out, you use a special tool to uh, to break into the hotel room. You uh, we had a, there was a laptop and some boxes that were locked, and we had to do some lock picking, and we had to get photographs of secret plans, and uh, we had to transfer some contact from a phone onto a, another device, um, put some put some uh, implants onto a, the laptop that was sitting there on the table, and so you you, had, you know basically carrying out these sort of spy-like tasks. But you've only got 15 minutes, and it's extraordinarily high pressure. I was sweating like crazy, and my team team friend was uh, was madly working on the laptop, and we're and we're like, and you you get scored for different things. So you have to. Uh, you know, if you wear gloves, you get a little bit more points. If you uh, pull the blinds down, you get some more points. Uh, if you make too much noise, you get points taken away. So you have to be really quiet. Uh, so, we, yeah, there are a few, few occasions where we made a bit of noise, but I think we were okay. And I'd set the timer on my phone uh, to, to be near the end. And uh, it, it when the timer went off on my phone, it felt like one or two minutes had passed. Like it was that intense oh, wow. an experience to go through. Uh, so, yeah, we watched the other teams compete as well. All up, we came fourth, and there were 13 teams overall that competed. Nice the, job. the cool part was that the uh, unfortunate for us because we didn't make the top three, but the top three teams on the Sunday got to do an extra task, and I'll quickly run you through what they had to do. So they were told that there's some sort of clue in the conference venue to, that they had to find, right? It turned out the clue was actually on a hidden access point you know, Wi-Fi network that they had to find the access point network and had to log in and then had to crack into something and that gave them some instructions to go to the state library. They went to the state library, they're given a code for a locker, they had to open the locker and in there was a clue to find a book in the library. In the book in the library there's a cipher, a page with some cipher code that they had to decipher which gave them instructions to go back to the conference venue, go up into the uh, the alleyway up behind the, uh, the courtyard and there was a fake bomb device that, ha- that was set with a, a, a sort of a trip that apparently when you touched it, the timer would start counting down oh, and then you had to pull wires wow. out in a certain order to, to defuse it. That's amazing. <laughs> this suddenly explains 
why when I had a, a drink with the guy who designed that device uh, afterwards, he was muttering something about, was it a really good idea to be building a fake bong uh, <laughs> in this current political climate? Yes, mm. yes, probably not. But, but uh, it was a standard <laughs> red was, wire, blue wire. I believe so. Yeah, I didn't. I never actually saw it, uh, and I and I and I did hear that some. It didn't go all to plan, and there were a few things that sort of went went wrong with it. But uh, it which was, didn't include the, the organisers being arrested. No. Was the guy local who built it? Did he happen to say? Because if he jumped on a plane with that, that would have been interesting. No, no, no. He was local to it Melbourne. It was a clock. So was a, okay. It oh, was a right. clock. Yeah, it okay. wasn't. A, it wasn't a bomb. It was a clock. You know that one. Could have been a clock up. Right. Mm. Oh, very good. <laughs> on that note, we should. I think we've done everything we needed to talk about. We have. Yes. That's Ruxcon. That's a that's a very decent um, summary summary of it. I think. Yeah. Excellent. There was a, an excellent panel at the end. Well, excellent for my bits because I was on that panel. You will hear that in a second podcast to appear. Well, maybe about a week or so after this one. We shall see. Uh, thank you, Darren. Thank you very Darren much, Darren Pauly from The Register. And thank you, Michael McKinnon you. from... Where are you from now? Sense of security. And I have such a sense of security. <laughs> now that you're here, I'm still Garyan, and that's enough today from Corrupted Nerds. Pivot9 are proud to sponsor this Ruxcon Wrap, brought to you by Stilgarian. Are you a customer confounded and confused by enterprise IT? Are you a vendor trying to convince customers that your shiny new tool is exactly what they need? Whether it's specific advice about a single purchase or ongoing advice about what you should be doing with your IT life, Pivot9 is here to help. Find us online at pivot9.com. That's it for Corrupted Nerds, episode 16. Episode notes and links are at corruptednerds.com. If you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to see every one of these podcast episodes uh, at iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, by Spreaker. You can use the uh, podcast software of your choice. And if you'd like to support this podcast, Perhaps shoot down the aircraft overhead. Uh, go to the website and find out how to do that. The next episode of Corrupted Nerds will contain the Ruxcon 2016 panel that'll appear around a week from now. I'm Stilgarian. See you then. Corrupted Nerds is a Skank Media production. Sorry.